Hi there, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, as always, we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on January 16th, 2017, right in the middle of winter. Anyway, we hope you enjoy it and uh, let us know. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. see you folks out here tonight because of all of the ice on the roads. Carol and I have not been out of this house for three days because it started icing. I guess it was sometime Friday. And we have had sort of a continual flow of ice here since uh, it is now, as I'm recording this, it's Sunday afternoon. Well, actually, it's supposed to be quitting right about now, so I guess maybe, maybe the roads are better, huh? Well, good. I'm glad you came. Come on in. Come on in. Glad to have you. Get warm over there by the fire. We've got some hot cider, some hot coffee, hot chocolate. How about some hot chocolate? We've got it all lined up. We've got a great show tonight. Glad to have you guys along. This is Bob Bro. Welcome. Welcome. The name of our show is Boomer Boulevard. And this is the show where we play old-time radio shows we actually remember from when we were kids. The reason is because we're baby boomers and we were... Alive back there in the 50s and the early part of the 60s. We were kids, but we remember some of these shows. Some of them we remember from television, because a lot of these shows ended up on television. But some of them we actually remember hearing on the radio. Glad to have you along. Just fill up the seats right back there. Boy, I didn't think anybody would come out in this ice. It is a heck of a day out there, everybody. How is it where you are? You all look good. You all look healthy and well. We've got a great show lined up tonight. We've got an episode of Dragnet that's pretty good. Pretty good episode. We have an episode of the Jack Benny Show that's very funny. Jack goes out to buy a new suit, so you know that's going to be funny. And then we're going to finish things up with one of the early episodes of Gunsmoke that we have not played for a number of years. So that's what's on the lineup this week. So glad you came along. So pull up a seat. We're going to get started in just a moment. 
Chester, you are looking um, like you're none the worse for wear with all the ice. You got through it all right? All right. You ready to queue up the first show? All right. Well, let's have a little dragnet. This week we're going to get things rolling with an episode of Dragnet. And the episode we have tonight first aired 53, no, 63 years ago this week. Original air date of January the 19th in 1954. So that's a long time ago, folks. The name of this episode is The Big Bill, and I can't figure out why they named it that. If you can figure it out, listen as as you listen to the show, try, <laughs> try to figure out why they named it the Big Bill. Maybe it's it's obvious and I just missed it, but I could not figure it. I don't even hear anybody name Bill in here, and I don't see that there was a bill to be paid, so I don't know why they called it the Big Bill, but that's the name of this episode. It's a good one. It features uh, Jack Webb and Ben Alexander. And we've got uh, uh, some good cast members here. We've got Vic Rodman and um, who plays the kid? Billy Chapin is the little boy's name. Not familiar with him. I wonder if he was uh, related to Lauren Chapin, who was the daughter on the TV show Father Knows Best. Could be. And let's see, who else is in here? Well, that's all they give credit for. Here it is from 1954. This is Dragnet and the Big Bill. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Your detective sergeant, you're assigned a homicide detail. An elderly woman in your city has disappeared. There's no lead to where she's gone or why she left. Your job, find her. documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, July 14th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. We were on our way out from the office, and it was 9.47 a.m. when we got to 654 Kenmore Avenue. Yes? Miss Crocker? It's Miss Crocker, but I'm her. Police officers. Oh, yeah. Come in. Thank you. This is my partner, Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Well, how, how do you do, do? ma'am? Uh, just sit down there on the couch. Move that afghan. I was laying down when you got here. Terrible thing. I just know it. Yes, ma'am. If you tell us about it, please. You just bet I will. 
First off, can I get you something? Maybe a cup of coffee, a little piece of cinnamon toast? No, thank, no, thank you, you ma'am. Okay. You change your mind, you just let me know. Yes, we will. Now, if you just tell us about Ms. Gillespie, please. I hope if anything ever happens to me, I get this kind of service. Yes, ma'am. Are you a friend of Mrs. Gillespie? Her best. That's why I know something's happened to her. Uh-huh. She wouldn't just take off like this without telling me. Matter of fact, she didn't tell nobody. Just all of a sudden, she was gone. All right, if you'd start right at the beginning and just tell us the whole story, please. Well... Bertha Gillespie and me been friends for years. I see. Her and me been friends for years, ever since her husband died and she opened up the tea cozy. That's the little tea shop she has. Yeah. Nice place. She's done real good with it. All the ladies in the neighborhood go down there for afternoon tea, serves those little tiny cake rolls with a pot of tea. Ladies' fingers, you know. Yes, ma'am. Well, a couple of days ago, I went down there to see Bertha. You know what day that was? Hmm? I said, do you know the exact date? Oh, now, let's see. This is Wednesday. I guess it must have been Saturday. Uh, yes, that's it, Saturday. All right, would you like to go ahead, please? Well, I went down to the tea cozy, and there was a sign right on the door telling how Bertha was sick and she'd gone away for a couple of days. Was she in poor health? Bertha? Yes, ma'am. Bertha was as strong as an ox. Nothing wrong with her. Besides that, I saw her only Friday night. She didn't say nothing to me about being sick, not a word. I see. That's what made me figure that there was something wrong. For the past ten years, if there was anything on Bertha's mind, she told me about it. You just bet she did. Well, isn't it possible that she just used the pretended illness as an excuse? That she just went away on a trip, maybe? Oh, Bertha wouldn't do that. Why do you say that? Because oh, she just wouldn't do it. Not with Saturday coming up. There isn't anything in the world that could make Bertha leave. Well, what's happening Saturday? Scrabble. I beg pardon? Scrabble. You know, the word game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, the ladies in the neighborhood have a sort of club... We meet down at the Cozy and play our tournaments. Bertha's the champion. Hasn't been anybody that can beat her real good. You know, not regular. Yes, ma'am. Uh, that's why she wouldn't leave. This Saturday was her first big match outside the club. Woman from West Los Angeles was coming out here to challenge her. Bertha's been in training all week. Well, she wouldn't just walk out on the match. I'm telling you, officers, there's something wrong. Well, has Mrs. Gillespie any relatives here in Los Angeles? No. No, she's got some people back east, uh... Mississippi, I think. Possible she might have left to go see them? I told you. Not with the big match coming on. Ain't nothing in the world that could keep Bertha from playing in that. Nothing, and you believe it. Yes, ma'am. Does she have any men friends? Oh, you mean romantic? Yes. Well, there's Chester, but that's not what I'd call a real romance. Bertha'd go out to the movies with him once in a while. Maybe he'd come over to the tea cozy even evening, and they'd sit there and watch the television... But there'd always be somebody else there, mostly me. No, no, you couldn't say that it was any kind of a romance with Chester. Do you have his address? Are you going to talk to him? Yes, we'll have it. It won't do you any good. I already did. He don't know where Bertha is. If you'll just give us the phone number of this Chester, we'll check on your friend. Yeah, you check. You'll find out what I said is true. Yes, ma'am. I think somebody done Bertha in. She wouldn't just take off like this without telling me. Well, now, ma'am, did she have any enemies in the neighborhood? Anybody that you think might want to do her harm? No, not a soul, not a single one. Isn't anyone who didn't like her. Well, maybe Mrs. Ruman didn't care much for her, but I think that was a kind of a jealous thing. What do you mean? Scrabble. Well, what's that? Mrs. Ruman, a Helen. She thought she could play the game. Then when she challenged Bertha to a match, well, it was, well, it was pretty terrible. 457 to 214. Helen was pretty upset. She tried to make out like she was a good loser, you know, kind of smiled and laughed. But I could tell. She didn't like being skunked. Yes, ma'am. Can you think of any reason why anyone would want to harm Miss Gillespie? 
Well, not right off, unless it was for money. What? Last time I saw her, she was carrying a lot of cash money around with her. Yeah. $2,500. a.m. We put in a call to missing persons detail and checked the name Bertha Gillespie through the files. There'd been no report filed on her, and her name did not appear in the Gaga file. We checked the name through R&I, but she had no criminal record in Los Angeles. 10.47 a.m. We drove by the Tea Cozy restaurant. On the front door, attached with cellophane tape, was a hand-lettered note reading, Taking a short vacation. Watch for reopening. Through the glass pane, we could see the interior of the shop. Everything appeared to be in order. Frank and I checked the rear of the building, but from what we could see, there was nothing out of line. 11.28 a.m. We put in a call to the missing woman's boyfriend, Chester Avon. He told us that he talked to the Gillespie woman on the previous Friday night, and she'd appeared in good spirits and had said nothing about leaving. We checked at her bank. We found that she'd made a withdrawal from her savings account to the amount of $2,500. This left a balance of over $12,000 in the savings account, $6,000 in the checking account. The manager of the branch told us that he'd spoken with Mrs. Gillespie when she'd taken the money, and that she told him that she was thinking of taking a short vacation. We got in touch with Miss Crocker and told her what we'd found. We asked her if she wanted to file a missing persons report. She said that she'd wait until the end of the week, and if her friend hadn't returned by then, that she'd come into the office. A month passed before we heard from her again. On the morning of Friday, August 20th, she called to tell us that she still hadn't heard from Mrs. Gillespie and asked that we conduct a formal investigation. She came down to the office and filled out a Form 316. Frank and I drove out to the restaurant to check it again. It was exactly as it had been when we'd last seen it. We tried the doors and found that they were still locked. 1.43 p.m., we went back to the office. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of high, isn't it? Yeah. Well, did your people check into it? I see. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Mr. Jones. If you find out anything, we'd appreciate it if you'd give us a call. Right? That's Michigan 5211, extension 2521. Yes, sir. Either Officer Frank Smith or Sergeant Joe Friday. That's right. Thanks for your help. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, that finishes up the utility calls. Well, what do you got? Telephone bill for the past 30 days is just the service charge, no toll calls. Same with the electric lights. Uh-huh. They received payment in the last month, did they? No. Telephone company says they haven't been paid in over 60 days. Says they've sent a couple of reminders. Uh-huh. Only reason they haven't cut off the service is the bills have always been paid promptly in the past. I checked with our business office. Girl tells me the bill usually runs around 10 bucks. Possible, then, that the phone hasn't been used at all, huh? Well, it shapes up that way. Same with the lights. The one thing doesn't match. Yeah, what's that? The water bill. I checked with them. Normal bill's about four bucks for the place. Yeah. Last 60 days, it's been $79. It's a lot of water, isn't it? Yeah. I talked to one of the engineers at the company, a fellow named Jones. Yeah, what'd he tell you? Well, he told me there was only one thing that could cause a water jump like that. Yeah. A water tap. Yeah. Running for about a month. p.m. We called the bank where Mrs. Gillespie had her accounts. The head cashier told us that since the date she'd withdrawn the $2,500, there'd been no deposits or withdrawals made. We telephoned the missing woman's friend, Mrs. Winifred Crocker. From her, we got the name and address of the owner of the building where the tea cozy restaurant was located. Frank and I signed out of the office and drove out to see him. The address we'd been given was a large house in the Silver Lake District. We rang the bell to the front door, but we got no answer. We walked around to the back of the property to a large garage. Now, Joe, if we find this guy, we can find out if she gave him some indication she was going to leave. Yeah. Sounds like there's somebody there. Yeah. In here, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah? We'd like to see Virgil Medina. 
I'm him. What do you want? Police officers. We'd like to check out a few things with you if we can. What about? Well, it might be easier if we talked inside. I got no truck with the cops. I got nothing I want. Now, now you can just ask your questions from out there. All right, sir. That's the way you want it. Well, that's the way it's going to be. Now, get your questions asked and go about your business. You own a building located at 687 Kenmore Avenue? Why? Look, Mr. Medina, we're trying to conduct an investigation. We'd like to have your cooperation. If you don't want to talk here, we can go downtown. I own the building. Why? You have a tenant named Bertha Gillespie? Yes. Why? When did you see her last? Well, about a month ago, at least that. Do you remember the exact date? I don't know. It's a long time ago. What's all this about Bertha, anyway? What are all these questions? You got something you want to know about her? Go ask her yourself. Anything I can tell you that she can't, go talk to her. Leave me alone. Where'd you see her last? Down at the restaurant. What time of day? Night, night time. Would you try to remember what date it was? It's pretty important. Wait a minute. I'll try to figure. See, I guess it must have been on a Saturday night. Yes, I'd say it was Saturday, the 10th of July. Do you have any way of being sure that that's the date? Now, look, you come around here asking questions, and I've given you an answer. You can take it or leave it. I got no way of being sure. That's the day I think I saw her last. She seemed in good spirits? What do you mean by that? Well, sir, was she happy, or was there something worrying her? Well, she seemed happy to me. I didn't pay a lot of attention. What are you cops trying to find out? You come right out and tell me what you want, and maybe I'll have the answer. But I haven't got time to stand around and waste time with you. Now, you, you tell me why you're asking these questions, or you can leave. Mrs. Gillespie's been reported missing. We're trying to trace it. Well, who done that? Who says she's missing? Well, that's not the important point here. We got the report. We've got to check it out. Well, whoever told you that's crazy? If Bertha's gone, there's a good reason for it. I guess she just finally got fed up and left town. What do you mean? She made a mint of money from that place. Regular mint. Used to tell me that when she had enough, she was going to just take off and see the world. Go around the whole world on a tramp steamer. She told me when she signed the last lease that she thought this would be the last one. I, she ain't missing. She's just gone. Did she say anything to you about the fixtures in the place? Uh, what do you mean? Well, you know, the furniture, all the fixtures. They belong to her, don't they? Yes, I guess so. Will she make any arrangements to dispose of them? Not to me, she didn't. What if you have a key to the place? The tea cozy? Yes, sir. No, I don't. You own the building and you don't have a key to the restaurant? Well, no, I had one, but I lost it. Never had another one made. Why? What do you want with the key? We mm -hmm. want to check the premises. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you've got no right to do that. Place belongs to Mrs. Gillespie. You got no right to go tromping around in there. Afraid we're going to have to. Then you're going to do it without my say so. All right, sir. If that's the way it's going to be. I'm telling you, she ain't going to like it. She ain't going to like you going in the place when she isn't there. Well, we take that up with her. Well, you better because I'm not going to take any responsibility for it. We're not asking you to, Mr. Medina. I'll give you this, though. Yes, sir. What's that? You go nosing around, you're liable to come up with something that you ain't looking for. Well, well, thanks for your help, Mr. Medina. No mention. Just remember what I told you about finding trouble when you ain't looking for it. Well, that doesn't happen often. Huh? We're looking for it. 3.14 p.m., Frank and I drove back to the tea cozy restaurant on Kenmore Avenue. We checked the front door of the place. It was locked. While Frank covered one side of the building, I took the other side, looking for open windows. How about it? No, no luck. Me neither. What do we do now? Well, we'll have to try to force one of the windows in the back. All right. Come on. I think maybe we can get in here. You're going to break it? Well, we're going to have to. Wait a minute, Joe. Huh? You hear water running? Sounds like it's coming from inside. Yeah, it might be. Well, let's get in there. Right. You want my gun? No, I'll use the handcuffs. See if I can knock a hole in the top half of the window here. Well, wait a minute. You better use your handkerchief. Let me borrow yours. Here. All right. All right, look. All right, 
does it. I'll go on in and open the door. Yeah, I'll meet you out in front. All right. Frank? Yeah, here. Come on in. See anything? No, I haven't looked yet. Well, this must be the living room. Yeah. Everything looks okay here, a little dusty. Yeah. Water's running someplace. Wait a minute. Yeah. Sounds like it's come from over there. Yeah. Better turn it off. Yeah. Better call a crime lab, huh? Yeah. Kind of a rough one, isn't it? Yeah. Looks like she put up quite a fight. Blood stains all over the place. Yeah. Look here. Huh? I guess this is what killed her. Yeah. Butcher knife. picture in the description that we'd gotten from Winifred Crocker, we identified the victim as the missing woman, Bertha Gillespie. We put in a call for the crime lab. Lee Jones and his crew came out and went over the place. The rest of the restaurant seemed to be in order. There was no sign of a struggle of any kind except in the bathroom where the body had been found. The murder weapon, the butcher knife, was dusted for prints as was the rest of the restaurant, but the partials that the crime lab came up with were worthless for classification. They would be sufficient, however, for comparison if we caught the killer. A search of the personal effects of the dead woman revealed no further information to aid us in apprehending her killer. The $2,500 that she was known to have had when she was last seen was missing. 621, the men from the crime lab finished their investigation on the scene, and the coroner's office was called. They came out and removed the body. They also locked the door and affixed the coroner's seal. 6.45 p.m., Frank and I got back to our car to go down to the office. Right, let's go, Frank. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Hold it, Frank. Huh? That's a little kid. You guys the cops? Yeah, son. What's the matter? A lot of excitement around here, huh? Yeah, that's right. Something we can do for you? No. I figure maybe there's something I can do for you. What do you mean? You know who did the murder yet? Why do you say it was a murder, son? I know who did it. detective has learned by experience that approximately 60% of all homicides are solved within 20 minutes after the arrival of the authorities. Two things are necessary in establishing the identity of a killer. Motive and opportunity. In the present instance, we had the motive. $2,500 that the dead woman had withdrawn from her account was missing. However, a month had passed between the time the actual murder had taken place and it had been discovered. Ample time for the killer to cover his tracks. Now, before we could leave the scene, we had a witness who stated that he could name the killer for us. We asked the boy to get into the back seat of the police car while Frank and I questioned him. What's your name, son? Good, Eric. Kids always call me Gordy. Uh-huh. How old are you? Seven. Now, what's all this about you being able to tell us who killed Mrs. Gillespie? I can. Well, who was it? Mr. Medina. You mean the man who owns the building? Yeah, that's who I mean. Well, that's a pretty serious charge, Gordon. Do you have any way to prove that? I guess I really can't prove it, but I know it's true. Well, how do you know? I just know, that's all. I seen him there. I just seen him going in and out. Well, when was this? Three weeks ago. Maybe a month. But he used to go in and out all the time. Argue with Mrs. Gillespie. What do you mean by argument? No. Mr. Medina screamed at Mrs. Gillespie. Will you ever hear any of these arguments, son? Sure. My mother's a friend of Mr. Gillespie. We just live a couple blocks away on Dewey Street. I play over here all the time. I've heard Mr. Medina yell at her and yell at her. What'd they argue about, son? Mostly about lease or something. Seems like Mr. Medina wants Mrs. Gillespie to move out. She didn't want him. Made him pretty sore. 
You gotta talk to him. He'll tell you the same thing about how he used to fight with her. All right, son. Your mother ever hear any of these fights? Sure. You ask her. She'll tell you the same way just as I did. Okay. Is she home now? Should be. Maybe she went out to the store or something. She should be home. Okay, son. Let's go, Frank. Yeah. Guess this is about the most excitement we've had for a long time. Yeah. Poor old Mrs. Gillespie. Sure, nice old lady. Real nice. Mm-hmm. Wasn't hardly anybody that didn't like her. Hardly anybody. How about Mr. Medina? 7.04 p.m. We drove young Gordon Eric to his home and talked with his mother. She verified his story about the arguments between the victim and Medina. She went on to say that Medina had threatened Mrs. Gillespie, saying that if she wouldn't vacate the premises, he'd take care of her. We had their statements taken, and at 8.40 p.m., we went by Medina's house and asked him to accompany us downtown. He finally agreed, although he was sullen and uncooperative. When we got him down to the office, we checked his name through the record bureau, but we found that he had no criminal record in Los Angeles. His prints were rolled and sent to Harlan Stahl for comparison with those found on the murder weapon. While we waited for the results, we talked to him in the squad room. You're going to regret this, you know that. Yeah. I'm telling you, you drag me down here with all these questions. You, you just wait till my lawyers get here. He'll put a stop to all this foolishness. You want to tell us what it's all about, Medina? Tell you about what? How one of my tenants got herself killed? Now listen, I got property all over town, a lot of tenants. If I worried about each one of them, I wouldn't have no time to do nothing else. We understand you had some pretty big arguments with Mrs. Gillespie. Who said that? Who, who told you that? Is it true? Why, it's a lie. You bring the person in here who said it, and I'll tell them it's a lie right to their face. You just bring them in here. We can't do that, and you know it. Well, of course you can. You know why? You want me to tell you? Go ahead, you tell us. You can't show the person who said that because there ain't no such person. Anybody in the world who says, I'll argue with Bertha. Uh-huh. You try to get her to break her lease with him? That's none of your business. I told you before, I'm not about to answer a lot of questions that aren't none of your concern. A couple of things we better set you straight on, mister. You're a suspect in a murder. Now, if you're smart, you're going to realize that and give us some straight answers. You just wait till my lawyer gets here. He'll take care of all this. He's going to fix you for taking my fingerprints. I still don't think you had any right to do that. No right at all. Oh, yes. Homicide, Friday. Yeah, Harlan. How many? All right. Thank you. You want to tell us why you killed her, Medina? What are you talking about? That was our fingerprint man. They checked your prints against the ones we found on the murder knife. They match perfectly. Hmm. You're sure of it? They're sure. I, I didn't mean to do it. I really didn't mean to, honestly. Just all of a sudden, I got so mad. I was standing there smiling. You should have known this. She had a way of smiling at you, and you knew that there wasn't anything that you could do. You just stand there smiling. I didn't mean to kill her, though. You got to believe that I didn't mean to kill her. Want to tell us how it happened? Have you got a cigarette? Yeah. Here you go. Thanks. There's a match. I had a chance to lease the place to some other people. More money. I tried to get her out. Go ahead. I tried to talk to her. I tried to get her to retire. She had enough money. She didn't ever have to worry. All I wanted her to do was to get out. But she wouldn't. He said I'd signed the lease with her and she was going to keep it. How much difference was there between what she was paying and what the new people were going to give you? Fifty dollars a month. You killed her for that? Oh, yeah, you don't understand. You got to try. Now, really, this is important. If you knew Bertha, you'd know why I did it. You see, I went to her. I, I told her that I'd give her a lease on another piece of property. 
I, I'd give it to her at less money. I, I was trying to be fair. You can see that. I wanted to be fair. Mm-hmm. Well, that Saturday night, I, I decided to have it out with her. I went over to talk, tried to convince her. But she wouldn't listen. She just wouldn't listen. I tried everything to make her listen, but she wouldn't. She just stood there and told me that she had the lease and that she was going to keep it. She just stood there with that superior smile of ours, like she knew it all. Makes you want to kid her as hard as you could. If you knew her, you'd see what I mean. You'd see, you'd see. Did you take the money? Yes. I don't know why I did that. Just all of a sudden, I got so mad at her, I picked up the knife, and I killed her. I didn't mean to. Honest, I didn't. As soon as I saw her, I was sorry. I was real sorry. Yeah. Did you turn that water on? Well, I guess so. You see, I, I don't remember too good. I I washed my hands after I'd killed her. I remember that. I guess I, I guess I did leave the water on. I guess I did, yes. All right. Do you want to get the stenographer, Frank? Sure. Thanks. You've seen the way she thought she was so much better than anybody else you'd know. Is that right? Sure. All those old hands clucking around all the time, building her up, making her feel superior, real superior. Uh-huh. If she'd just moved out, if she'd just let me have the place, it all would have been all right if she'd just done that. That's a lot of money, you know. Fifty dollars a month. That's what I stood to make on the deal. Yeah. It was worth it, don't you think? Fifty dollars a month without turning a hand? Everybody had figured that way, wouldn't they? Well, everybody thinks so. Now, when you get where you're going, you can ask him. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 10th, trial was held in Department 97, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Virgil Emil Medina was tried and convicted of murder in the second degree and received sentence as prescribed by law. Murder in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of from five years to life. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Rodman, Billy Chapin. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles.
John Cameron Swayze and the news next on the NBC Radio Network. The Big Bill. Did you figure out why they named it that? That was the name of that episode of Dragnet that was originally broadcast on January the 16th. No, excuse me. January the 19th, 1954. A couple notes on that one. Again, and I've talked about this before, when you live in California, anything over the Rocky Mountains is back east. He was talking about uh, she has a sister back east. I don't know, Mississippi or someplace. <laughs> Mississippi is not exactly back east. I, I know a lot of people um, that I grew up around in California were not familiar with geography. And if you showed them a map and said, show us where they may be able to show you where New York and Chicago are, maybe Chicago, I'm not sure, but a lot of these cities in the Midwest and in the South, they would not be able to tell you. They would not be able to show you where Atlanta was or Dallas or uh, a number of uh, number of major cities, uh, Minneapolis. Oh, well, that's a uh, chip on the shoulder of a lot of people that uh, that live in the Midwest. Did you catch that phone number? She said, dial Michigan 5211. Michigan 5211. Remember when they had prefixes like that? Michigan. I remember in Long Beach it was Garfield, G-A, or Hemlock, H-E. And then I remember my phone number growing up was Garfield 49281. Hemlock uh, was downtown Long Beach and Garfield was in the up, uptown part of Long Beach. It's interesting, when they went to area codes, they did away with those, but I never remember four numbers. And it would have been five numbers, like Michigan 52112. And that was back during the days of, uh, you know, party lines and having to call the operator to get long distance. They didn't have direct dial long distance until later on. Uh, They mentioned putting a coroner's seal on the investigation. I had never heard of that term, and it ends up that a coroner's seal can be placed uh, by the coroner on uh, a residence or a room in a residence or an office or any location in order to protect and preserve the decedent's personal property on behalf of the legal next of kin. Well, that's interesting. So it really doesn't have so much to do with crime investigation as it does we're locking this up until this uh, probate can all be settled and next of kin can come in and get the property that is rightfully theirs. I had never heard of that before. Joe Friday said that most crimes are solved in the first 20 minutes. I guess <laughs> that does away with that 48-hour business you hear all the time. You know, if a crime's not solved in the first 48 hours, there's a 50% chance it won't be solved. Joe Friday said the first 20 minutes when the police arrive on the scene. So that was interesting. And then the uh, the neighbor there, the, the fellow that was uh, guilty, said that uh, he thought that the lady had gone on a tramp steamer around the world. And we've talked about this before. Can you still book passage on steamships, uh, that is, freighters? And according to something I've got here, mm-hmm, this is a website called Freighter Expedition. And it's about traveling on cargo ships. And it says many ships have a few cabins and they make them available. You normally have to book up to six months in advance. There are generally no peak or off-peak prices because there's not very many cabins to fill. The ships are working vessels, so you'll be mixing with the captain and crew. 
You can do segments, one-way or round trips, depending on the journey. Prices generally include meals, accommodations, and port fees. And you must be under 80 years of age to cruise on a cargo ship. It says you will be issued a photo security ID to get on and off the ship. The captain will normally take your passport when you board so he can show immigration uh, when you arrive at a port. You must have travel insurance with evacuation coverage. They suggest you take a pair of shoes to wear while on the deck and leave them at the door of your cabin so that you don't get soot on the carpeting. And they say bring along books and DVDs and be a good citizen and leave them when you leave the ship for the next person. So I guess you can still travel around the world on a cargo ship. Now, there's nothing here about prices, so... If you're interested, you might uh, might give it a little further investigation. But this was from a website entitled FreighterExpeditions.com. And that'll wrap up my comments on this episode of Dragnet, but we'll have more Dragnet in the weeks ahead. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 Sunset Strip. The street that wears a fancy label. It's glorified in song and fable. The most exciting people pass you by. Including a private line. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 Sunset Strip. You meet the highbrow and the hipster, the starlet and the pony tipster. You find most every kind of gal and guy, including a private eye. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 Sunset Strip. 77 doesn't remember those two shows. From the late 50s, early 60s, two big Warner Brothers trendsetters, 77 Sunset Strip and Hawaiian Eye. You can still see those shows uh, 
I bet you could find them on one of those obscure cable stations. And I know that some episodes are on YouTube, too, and you can watch them online. And uh, they're good, they're fun, they're nostalgic, but as far as the technical quality of the shows and some of the storylines, they probably don't hold up real well over the years. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Well, do you feel like laughing? Well, that's a good thing. Because we have a very funny episode of the Jack Benny Show coming up now. It was originally broadcast on the 7th of May back in 1950. Now this one is commonly referred to as Jack Buys a New Suit. But like all the Benny Shows, that's just part of the storyline. And the first part of the show is really, I, in my opinion, the funnier part. The um, conversation with Phil Harris is just outstanding. And also the bit with Rochester is very, very good. You know, on Fibber, McGee, and Molly, how most people, one of the things they enjoy most about that show is hearing Molly laugh. You know what I'm talking about? That that deep, hearty laugh that sometimes when she just gets tickled when she's reading a line or somebody else comes up with a great line. Well, I kind of feel the same, and, and I feel that way too, but I kind of feel the same way about Mary Livingston. When she laughs, it just kind of warms my heart. And she has a really cute laugh in this particular episode. That's just my take on it. All right, going back to 1950, May the 7th, here is The Jack Benny Show. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it isn't often that our star goes out on a personal appearance tour. But having decided to go, a lot of preparations have to be made. At the moment... Jack is in conference with Steve Bradley, his publicity man. Yes, sir, Benny, this is the greatest idea you ever had. You just listen to me and we'll pack every theater from the sun-kissed shores of California to the rock-bound coasts of Maine. But, Steve... What an idea. Hand me that phone. I'll order the posters right now. We'll have billboards all over the country. <laughs> but, Steve... Look, Steve, look, I've never been billed that way before. Jack Benny, the platinum ball of fire. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. I've never worked with fans or balloons. I'm way ahead of you, Benny. Now, instead of fans or balloons, you'll come out in a blue spot and do your stuff with two violins. What? At the end of the dance, the violins open and pigeons fly out. <laughs> Pigeons? Certainly. 
We gotta do something to take their attention away from those skinny legs of yours. <laughs> now look, Steve, I'm not gonna go for any of your crazy... Excuse me, there's someone at the door. What a silly idea. Jack Benny, the platinum ball of fire. Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Come on in. Where's Rochester? That's what I'd like to know. Last night he asked me if he could have the evening off. I haven't seen him since. Well, Jack, maybe he... Steve! Steve Bradley! Mary! Mary Livingston! Long time no see! <laughs> Mary? Mary, you know Steve Bradley? Well, certainly he was my publicity man when I worked at the May Company. <laughs> No. Yes, sir, I gave this little girl one of the most extensive publicity campaigns in my career. In two short weeks, I raised her from the bargain basement to the stock encounter on the fifth floor. Well. And this, mind you, during the heat of a presidential campaign. All right, all right, calm down. I don't doubt that you're a great publicity man, but you'll have to think up another stunt for me. I'm not going to go for those pigeons. Uh, what's that supposed to be? I don't know. Steve's got some ideas about my personal appearance tour. He wants me to work with pigeons. <laughs> well, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I could just see the finale. A pigeon swoops down, takes off your toupee, and lays an egg in it. <laughs> Mary, this is going to be a high-class show. Just wait till you see it. You know, we open Wednesday night in Pasadena. By the way, Steve, how are they doing at the box office? Great, great. I had 50,000 tickets printed up. I'm going to need another 50,000. 50,000? How do you expect to sell all those tickets? Easy. On the face of the ticket, instead of printing Jack Benny, I put Rose Bowl game. <laughs> What? They're going like hotcakes. Uh, Steve, we're not going to do our show at the Rose Bowl. We'll be at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium. And I better book something into the Rose Bowl. It'll be jammed. <laughs> now, look, Steve, are you working for me or... Mary, would you get that, please? Okay. Hello? Well, lucky me. Every time I get a wrong number, it's a dame. <laughs> Phil, it's me, Mary. Okay, okay, you're not a bad number either, Liv. <laughs> well, thanks. Jack is busy right now. He'll call you back. Well, look, Livy, I'm not at home. I'm at the photographer's. Steve Bradley called me this morning, told me he had an idea he was going to talk over with Jackson, but in the meantime, I should rush down and have publicity pictures taken. So tell Jackson to hurry. I can catch cold standing here like this. <laughs> What? These pigeons ain't keeping me warm. <laughs> okay, I'll tell him. Jack, Phil wants to talk to you. All right, hand me the phone. Here. If a pigeon answer hangs up. Hangs up? Instead of Pasadena, we should be playing in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Hello, Phil. What? Hello, Phil. <laughs> Mumbles Livingston's getting hard to follow, ain't you?
Hey, Jackson, I want to talk to you about the band arrangement on that personal appearance tour. You got a minute? Sure, what is it? Well, look, uh, how do you want my orchestra to dress in blue suits or sport clothes? Neither, Phil. I want them to wear evening clothes. Look, Jackson, the only evening clothes they got are pajamas. <laughs> what? And they can't wear those. Half the drawstrings are missing. <laughs> Look, Phil, let them wear whatever they want. But look at... Uh, uh, but have Sammy... Now, look, have Sammy the drummer in a blue suit because he'll be sitting up high. Okay. And, Phil, when I'm out on the stage telling jokes, I want your boys to act as though they're enjoying it. It looks good to the audience. Oh, I already took care of that, Jackson. I even thought of the people in the balcony, so I painted a smile on the top of Sammy's head. <laughs> oh, wonderful! <laughs> Another thing, Dad, we're going to have a little problem with Remley. A problem? Yeah, but everything will be all right if we let him sit behind the piano. But, Phil, I want it to look like we've got a big orchestra. Why shouldn't Frankie sit out in the open? Because every time a spotlight shines in his face, he jumps up and yells, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. No. The only way we can calm him down is to beat him with a rubber hose. Phil, I'm busy. Arrange the orchestra the best way you can. So long. So long, Clyde. Don't forget to bring the hose. That Phil is the craziest guy. Hey, Benny, while you was on the phone, I got a sensational idea. Huh? Oh, Nelly. Now, listen. When you get to Milwaukee, it'll be the start of fire prevention week. Yes, yes, yes. So for a publicity stunt, we'll have you jump from the top of a 12-story building into a net. It's never been done before. <laughs> what do you mean it's never been done before? Many people have done stunts like that, jumping off a building into a net. A hair net? <laughs> What? Think of the publicity. Why, the paper will be full of it. Not only the story, but the pictures. Ah, I can see the flowers now. Now cut that out! <laughs> I want my publicity simple and dignified. So, you... now who can that be? Come in. Oh, hello, Jack. Hello, Barry. Hello, Don. Hello, Don. Come on in, fellas. Hello, boys. <laughs> hello, boys. Hello, hello Barry. <laughs> they talked. <laughs> Don. Don, they talked. It's the first time I ever heard them talk. Mary. Mary, they talked. Hello, fellas. <laughs> it was too good to last. Now, Don, I know you brought the boys over to try out the commercial, but I'm busy right now. Steve Bradley, my publicity man, is laying out my personal appearance tour. You know, I open in Pasadena Wednesday night. Wednesday night? Oh, darn it. I wish I could go then. Why can't you? I bought two tickets to the Rose Bowl game. <laughs> You'll still see my show. I'll explain it to you later. Now, take the boys home, will you? Oh, oh but Jack, this will only take just a minute. Now, the reason I want you to hear the commercial is because for the past few weeks, they've been singing popular songs. And this time, they have something classical, something that even Toscanini would be proud of. Toscanini? Well, all right, Don. Steve, this will only take a minute. We can talk later. Don, what's the title of this thing the boys are going to do? Ponchielli's Dance of the Hours from La Gioconda. Well... <laughs> this we've got to hear Take it, boys Scientific tests Prove they are the Milder by test. Gee, this is beautiful. 
Mary, give me your handkerchief. That ever is wrong. Oh, isn't that wonderful? What's this? Puff on a lucky, take a puff. On I a knew lucky, take a puff, take a puff. Because you'll never, ever find a puff that's rough. Never take a puff that's rough. Never take a puff that's rough. Take a puff, because you'll never get enough. Made of light and fine tobacco, smoke a lucky... Round and firm and fully packed, so smoke a lucky. When are they through? Light up a lucky, you'll be right. With a lucky, don't delay. Start today, because we know you're going to say you like the best. Lucky strikes is much the best. Take Sounds a like lucky from your best. Yeah. Make a test. You'll agree they are the best. For lucky strike means fine tobacco. La, 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 la. Don, take them home. Strike and fine and mild tobacco. La, 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 la. good, Don. Really a great number. Well, thanks, Jack. Well, we got to be running along now. So long, Mary. So long, Don. Bye, fellas. Goodbye, Goodbye Mary. Mary. So long, fellas. Mm. Get out of here. <laughs> now, where, uh, where were we, Steve? Is there any other idea you've got for publicity? Just one. What is it? When we arrive in Kansas City, I want you to walk down the street, play on your violin, and lead a thousand cows into the slaughterhouse. <laughs> Into the slaughterhouse? How do you know they'll follow me? Follow you? They'll be pushing you. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Oh, Jack. What? When you go out to buy a wardrobe for your stage show, I'd like to go with you. Wardrobe? Well, certainly aren't you going to buy some new suits? Mary, I just bought a new suit. In fact, you were with me. Jack, that was in 1936. <laughs> oh, time flies. <laughs> I haven't even started to wear the second pair of pants. <laughs> but maybe you're right, Mary. This suit I'm wearing now is old enough to send to Fred Allen. Hey, wait a minute, Benny. Wait a minute. Are you going to send that old suit to Fred Allen? Yes, why? That's a great human interest story, Benny. It'll be the biggest thing since that panhandler asked you for a dime and you gave him 50 cents. <laughs> Steve, don't mention that in this house. It's costing me a fortune in dishes. Now, look, Steve... Oh, for heavens. Come in. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. Look out for these firecrackers. Dennis. Dennis, what are you doing? I'm celebrating the 4th of July. Fourth of July? This is only the 7th of May. It is? Well, certainly. Boy, this daylight saving time sure has me mixed up. Look, kid, don't blame it on daylight saving time. You're always mixed up. What'd you come over for, anyway? Oh, I came over to warn you about a new quiz program. It's a fake. A new quiz program? Uh-huh. I answered every question right, and they didn't even give me a refrigerator or Bendix or anything. Well, what station is it on? Oh, it isn't on the radio. These people ring your doorbell, come right into your house, and ask you questions. <laughs> 
Dennis, that was the census taker. Census taker? Sir, every 10 years, the government goes all over the country counting noses. Why don't they just count people? <laughs> what? Suppose somebody does have two noses. It won't throw them off much. Look, kid, counting noses is just an expression. Oh. Oh, hello, Mary. I didn't see you. I know. I was hiding. I don't blame you. Neither do I. Who's he? This is Steve Bradley, my publicity man. Oh, yeah. You know, my father does that kind of work for Universal Studios. He does? I didn't know that. Sure. Right now, he's publicizing a picture called Coca-Cola for Mark Anthony. What? It's a sequel to Champagne for Caesar. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a cycle now. They're working on a new one called Strongheart for Lassie. <laughs> now, Dennis, I, I got to go and buy some new clothes. Now, let's hear your song you're going to do on the program. Okay. You? And when you finish, I want you to... Wait a minute, kid. Hold it. Well, what's the matter? I just heard the back door open and close. It must be Rochester sneaking in. Oh, Rochester! Yes, boy! Is that you sneaking in the back door? It ain't Georgie Jackson! <laughs> Rochester, come in here. I want to talk to you. Yes, sir. Now, Rochester, last night you asked me if you could have the evening off, didn't you? Uh-huh. Now, that was last night. Now, it's 11 o'clock the next morning. Uh-huh. Now, where have you been? Well, boss, we're going away soon, and some friends of mine on Central Avenue gave me a farewell party. Now, wait a minute, Rochester. Every night this week, you've been to a farewell party. It's the same one. We just adjourned during the daytime. <laughs> what? When the gold of the day meets the blue of the night, I go where the wild goose goes. <laughs> well, look, Rochester, I haven't got time to talk to you, and i got to listen to Dennis sing his song. Let's have it, kid. Just a minute. Dennis, give me that firecracker. Okay, here you are. Now, go ahead with... Ow! (laughs) Silly. Go ahead and sing. They say that falling in love is wonderful. And with a moon up above, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, so they tell me, I can't recall who said it, I know I
good, Dennis, and now that you've used your beautiful voice to win yourself back into my favor, would you do something for me? Oh, sure, Mr. Benny. What is it? Go home. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, I gotta run along, Benny. See a man about those pigeons. Look, Steve, you can forget it. I'm not gonna do a striptease act with a bunch of pigeons. Okay, okay. I'll be at the office if you want me. Jack, if you want me to go downtown with you to pick out a suit, we better go now. Okay, Mary. Oh, Rochester, where's the car? In the garage. Well, come on, we want you to drive us downtown. Yes, sir. Jack, why don't you keep your garage cleaner? I'll straighten it up someday. Come on, get in the car. <laughs> Go ahead, start the car, Rochester. Yes, sir, but first I gotta get a little water. Oh, is the radiator dry? No, I'm taking an aspirin. I know what's coming. <laughs> Never mind that. Just start the car. Yes. <laughs> it works every time. Try it again, Rochester. Yes, sir. There we are. Say, Jack, there's something wrong here. Why is the car leaning way over to the left? I don't know. Rochester, why are we leaning over to the left? Remember last week when you sent the car to the garage to have the wheels aligned? Yes. Well, only three came home. <laughs> Starring Claudette Colbert. <laughs> Stop being silly. How can, how can a car run with a missing wheel? I strapped a roller skate under the axle. Well, slow down when you cross the car tracks. Well, here we are, Mary. There's the store across the street. Rochester, there's a parking space. Where? Between that truck and the convertible. But I can't get into that space. It's too small. Well, put our bumper up against the truck and push it. Oh, boss, calm down. <laughs> well, Miss Livingston and I will get out here and you find a parking space. Yes, sir. Here's the store, Mary. Let's go in. Now, well, let's see. Where is the, uh... Hiya, bud. <laughs> What's new? Huh? Oh, hello. Hello. Come on, Mary. Let's get it. Uh, who is that? That's that racetrack tout I'm always running into. Now, let's see. I wonder... Oh, good afternoon. May I help you, sir? Yes, yes. I I'd like to buy a new suit. I don't blame you. <laughs> 
What? I'm Mr. Kearns, and I'll be glad to show you our new spring line. Good, good. But first, tell me, what is the price range here? Oh, our suits start at $25 and go up to $150. Well, I, I wouldn't want to wear anything as cheap as $25, and yet I wouldn't want to go way up to $150. I understand. I'd like something in the middle, say about $30. (laughs) Oh, Jack, why don't you get a good suit for a change? After all, you're going to wear it on the stage every night. Stage? Are you an actor? Why, yes, 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 I am. My name is Menasha Skolny. I mean, Jack... (laughs) I'm... I just happened to be thinking of him. I was reading him. I'm, I'm Jack Benny. Now, Mr. Kearns, uh, what, uh, what color suit would you suggest that I get? Huh? Well, now, a lot of men select a color to match their hair or their eyes. Let's see, uh, your eyes are blue, aren't they? Bluer than the lips of a schoolboy at 40 below. <laughs> oh, Jack. What is it, Mary? Here's a very pretty suit. It's gabardine. Oh, good, good. I like gabardine. Oh, I'm sure that suit would look very nice on you, Mr. Benny. Yes, but it's $45. Well, there's a whistle in the pocket. (laughs) Well, I don't care so much about that, but I think I'll take the suit. Oh, fine, fine. I'll go upstairs and get our tailor so he can measure you for any alteration. Thank you. you. Say, Mary, I'm going to walk to the back of the store, see if there's anything else I'd like. Want to join me? No, I'm tired. I'll just wait right here. Okay. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, grease paint. Da-da-da-da-da-da, count the house. Da-da-da-da-da. Yep. That gabardine suit will look nice. $45, though. Oh, well. There's no people Hey, like... Bud. <laughs> Bud. Huh? Come here a minute. Who, me? Yeah. What are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm buying a suit. What kind? Gabardine. Uh-uh. <laughs> What? Get a wool suit. Why Why should I get wool? On account of the pants. They're great in the back stretch. <laughs> but I, I like gabardine. Look, I'm telling you for your own good, get wool. But uh, Don't take my word for it. Look at the breeding. The breeding? It's out of Mary's Little Lamb by Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> Well, look, I'm going to buy a gabardine suit, and that settles it. Okay, it's your dough. What a guy. Whenever I run into him, oh, I have Oh, that... there you are, Mr. Benny. Yes, yeah, I was just looking around. Well, I'd like you to meet our tailor. Mr. Benny, this is Mr. Nelson. How do you do? <laughs> How do you do? Now, I don't want to seem impatient, but... But I'm in a hurry. Can, can we get on with the measuring? Why, certainly. Mr. Nelson, do you have your tape measure with you? Yes. Now, hold still, little man. Little man? You're buying the one with the whistle in the pocket, aren't you? <laughs> Look, Mr. Nelson, just take the measurements. Very well. Collar, 16. Collar, 16. Shoulders, 18. Shoulders, 18. <laughs> Chest, 
It says, well, how did it get way down there? Never mind that. A right sleeve, 34. Right sleeve, 34. A left sleeve, 21. <laughs> left sleeve, 21. You want people to see your wristwatch, don't you? Well, stop wasting my time. Oh, by the way, Mr. Benny, would you like wide or narrow cuffs on your trousers? Well, what's the difference? Well, there really isn't much difference, but most people prefer the wide cuffs. Why? Well, haven't you had it happen that you accidentally drop a coin and it falls into the cuff of your pants? No. He always catches it before it hits the ground Yes Now, Mr. Nelson, when will my suit be ready? In two weeks Two weeks? But I wanted it for my personal appearance well, I'm sorry, but it'll take two weeks You mean I can't have my brand new suit for my opening in Pasadena? No, but if you like, we'll run an ad in the paper telling them you bought one <laughs> I'm not going to buy the suit at all. But, Jack, if you don't have a suit to wear, what are you going to do about your personal appearance in Pasadena? I'll show you. Let me use that phone. <laughs> Hello, Steve. Buy some corn. We're going to use those pigeons after all. <laughs> Come on, Mary. Let's get out. I'm glad I didn't buy that suit from those smart-aleck guys in that store. Oh, Jack, forget it. Gee, I wonder where Rochester parked the car. I guess we'll have to walk clear around the block to find it. No, we won't, Mary. Wait a minute. I got something here that'll bring Rochester right to us. Jack, you didn't take... Right out of the pocket. <laughs> those guys aren't going to push me around. Come on. Be sure to hear Dennis Day in the Day in the Life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned to the Amos Mandy Show, which follows immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From the 7th of May, 1950, that was the Jack Benny Show. And the name of that one was Jack Shops for a New Suit for His Publicity Tour. I think is sort of the unofficial, official name of that episode. Interesting, the prices for those suits. He said they start at $25, go all the way up to $500. I can remember when I bought my first suit, I think by myself, I was probably in high school, and the salesman at Walker's mentioned to me that people like Bob Hope spend $500 for their suits. Now I suppose that would be 3000 That was a well-made suit back then, but $25 was the low end of the price. They mentioned census takers in that one. Have you ever been approached by a census taker? Have you ever had a census taker in your home? I remember as a kid, one time, a lady came into our home and she was the official census taker. And I remember her asking a whole bunch of questions. I mean, it must have taken 20 minutes to half an hour to fill this thing out. She filled it out as she asked the questions. I remember once on the Halls of Ivy, they had a census taker visit the Halls home. And it was the same sort of thing. They were asking these questions. I remember my mother, who was always the perfect hostess, and she was certainly cordial to this lady and friendly and warm. And we answered the questions, I guess, or she did. Don't recall my dad being there, so I don't know if it was a requirement that both uh, parties in the household be there. But I just remember that she asked a lot of questions like, 
well, how much did you pay for your stove or how old is your refrigerator? Things like that. I mean, really kind of personal things that you think the government really wouldn't have any right sticking their nose into. And I remember my mother kind of commenting on that afterwards, like, ooh, you know, that was quite an intrusion. But in all my adult years, I have never been the subject of a census taker. So I don't know. Has that changed the way they do that? Is that all done by computers now or something? I know that they're still done. I think that they still take a census every 10 years or so. Do you remember, getting back on the subject of suits for a minute, do you remember as a boy having a whistle in the pocket of a suit? I assume that was the joke there. Oh, well, the reason that suit's cheaper is that's a boy's suit because notice the whistle in the pocket. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't ever remember a whistle in the pocket of a boy's suit. Maybe that was a particular brand like Buster Brown shoes or something like that. Well, that's what makes listening to these shows from back there in the 50s uh, so much fun is they bring up a lot of memories of when we were kids. And... This, uh, this episode of Jack Benny was no different. More Jack Benny shows coming up in the very near future. Connie Stevens and Ed Burns. Kooky, lend me your comb. That's a, a song. We were talking about those Warner Brothers shows like Hawaiian Eye. Well, Connie Stevens was on Hawaiian Eye. Ed Burns, of course, was kooky on 77 Sunset Strip. And he always did the hip talk. I, I forget what they called it, but he was always coining words like ginchy. And that was sort of a fan favorite. And I remember kids trying to talk like that in school. But that, that didn't last very long because no one really knew what he was saying. 
It always reminds me of that very funny scene with Barbara Billingsley in the airplane movie, the original airplane movie, where she speaks jive to a couple of passengers. Maybe I'll tell you what, we'll play that clip as we're going out tonight at the very end of the show. Try to Remember by the Brothers Four. And uh, that was from the stage play or stage musical, The Fantastics, which uh, played off-Broadway for something like 35 years or something like that. Maybe it was even longer than that. I remember it played at the Sullivan Street Theater down in Greenwich Village. And it was a theater that, I, as I recall, only held maybe... 80 people or 100 people, but it played uh, week in and week out for many, many years. The Fantastics. I I actually saw a production in Hollywood about that same time when it was about in the middle of the run in L.A., and I think it played in Hollywood for a number of years, as I recall, and it was just a whole lot of fun. 
What's that, Chester? 42? Chester says that it played for 42 years off-Broadway. So that was even longer than I was thinking. 42 years. Something like how many? Over 17,000 performances. Imagine that. music means, everybody. That means it is time to go back to the 1870s. Time to visit the last days of the Old West in Dodge City, Kansas. We are walking up dirty, dusty Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon, keeping the good citizens of this fair community safe and sound. People like Doc and Chester and Kitty and all the citizenry in Gunsmoke. Glad to have you along, everybody. We've got a good episode tonight. This one was first broadcast on October the 31st, back in 1952, and it's entitled Overland Express. Here it comes. City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. 
Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. A stranger named Joe Beaudry killed a man in Dodge and then got on his horse and rode 90 miles northwest. He made it across the Smoky Hill River before his horse played out and fell behind a small knoll. Beaudry put a knife in him and settled on to wait. Half hour later, he shot my horse out from under me and crippled Chester's with a slug in the shoulder. And then he gave up. He just threw down his guns and walked toward us across the prairie. His hands in the air. You think it's a trick, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester, but if he makes a move, I'll kill him. Yes, sir. That's far enough, Baudry. Now turn around. I ain't armed, Marshal. No. You know, I'm curious, Baudry. Why didn't you shoot it out? I don't want to kill anybody, Marshal. You killed a man in Dodge. He went for his gun. I had to. Some of the witnesses say he didn't. Oh, sure. Friends of his. I heard him. That's why I lit out. Man looks guilty when he runs. You should have stayed and faced it Now, what there. kind of shake did I get in a strange town, Marshal? Everybody be against me. The law will protect you if you're innocent. You'll have to stand trial now anyway. Well, maybe I made a mistake, but I'm still alive. Yeah. And a long way from Dodge. Say, by gracious, that's right. Uh, how are we going to get back, Mr. Dillon? Well, we crossed the Overland Express route about five miles back. We just walked to the road and wait for a stage, I guess. Yeah, but the stage don't go up to Dodge from here, sir. Well, we'll take it into Fort Donner. Maybe the Army will lend us some horses there and we can turn them back at Fort Dodge. Marshal. Yeah. Well, I know you don't owe me no favors, Marshal, but... i never been arrested before. I, I'd be kind of ashamed in front of everybody in stage. Well, that's tough, Baudry. What do you expect me to do? Only a little thing, Marshal, won't make any difference to you. Just don't let them know that you're taking me in is all. All right, Baudry, I guess it doesn't matter. Thanks. I'm not wearing a badge anyway. But you make one move and I'll hogtie you and you'll ride on the roof. Or you'll be dead. Well, it's a deal, Marshal. You'll get a fair trial, Baudry. If you're innocent, you'll go free. Well, if it is a fair trial, I'm going back to California. I don't know why I ever left it. You come from California? Yeah. Hey, Marshal, look, is it all right if I lug my saddle back with me? Yeah, sure. We're not leaving ours. Uh, Chester, I'll go with Beaudry and get his guns. Yes, Mr. Dillon. I sure do wish you'd stop closer to the stage road, though, Beaudry. Five miles is a long way packing a saddle. Go take care of your horse, Chester. Let's get out of here. Yes, sir. It's a doggone shame, though. That was a mighty good horse. Come on, Beaudry. I sure hope the stage hasn't gone by already, Mr. Dillon. Why don't you get off your back and look down the road, Chester? Well, I declare. Looky, Andre, it's a coming. And it's painted bright red, too, Mr. Dillon. Hey, what if they don't stop for us, Marshal? Road agents don't usually carry their saddles. The driver will notice that if he's awake. Driving a six-horse hitch ought to keep him awake. Yeah, but not sober. It's a shotgun the messenger's holding. He doesn't need it. We want a ride, that's all. 
Where's your horses? Marshal, please, you remember what you said. We lost them. You don't look like greenhorns to me. It can happen to anyone. That's cool. The one in the middle ain't even armed. Pick him up, Hank. All right, Berryman, it's your treasure box. How far are you going? Fort Downer. It's about 60 miles to Fort Downer. You're crowding us. That'll be 15 cents a mile. 15 cents. How much is that, Mr. Dillon? Uh, about $9, Chester. $9 a piece, that is, and payable right here. All right. It's high, but I can't argue with you now. Here you are. 20, 5, 6, 7. All right, mister. Get in. I don't know how the passengers are going to like this, though. You got room for a couple more in here? Anybody can't keep his horse or to walk home. Uh, there's room for two, maybe, but not three. Oh? Take a look for yourself, mister. Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, Chester? Oh, now, sir, I, I can't... I don't want Brodery on top. You'll have to get up there, Chester. Well, I guess you're right, sir. But I think you fellas ought to charge us less if I can't ride inside. The Overland stage guarantees a ride, mister. Comforts the passengers' problem. Get in, Beaudry. Yeah. Now get fixed somehow. You've held us up long enough. Give me a hand now, there. Yeah. You don't look like a judge, mister. I'm not a judge. Well, you must be important somehow. We order these men around, and that fellow on top there calls you sir. Dylan? Well, let's just say that I'm sort of the boss of this outfit, mister. Uh, what'd you say your name was? I didn't say. It happens to be Dylan. Well, I'm Zimmer. Old man here called himself Gant. My name is Gant, and I ain't ashamed of it. I don't give a long hoot what any of you call yourselves. Gant's kind of crusty, but he's sober. That's more than I can say for the other two here. They only wake up long enough to pull on that jug they got and get drunk enough to go back to sleep. Well, that's not a bad way to travel if your stomach can stand it, I guess. No, I ain't doing it myself if I was younger. What business are you in, Dylan? You ask too many questions, Jimmy. You ain't got no manners. Nobody's asking you, old man. Good, good. Then I don't have to listen to your gobbling. Now, listen here, Gant. Any more out of you oh, and I'll tear you up. You can't spook me. I'm too old. Eighty-five, uh, uh, mister. Would you believe it? Uh, no, sir, I wouldn't. That's mighty old. <laughs> you sure don't look it. I knew Marijuana Lewis, mister. Met him in St. Louis when he and Clark come back from the Pacific. Now who's doing all the talking? Leave him be, Zimmer. There's no harm in passing the time. Well, look, mister. You may be the boss of these other fellas, but you don't run me. Nobody's trying to run you. Just take it easy. Uh, uh, don't pay him no mind, Dylan. He's just nervous about something. What are you driving at, old man? Uh, we'll be in Monument Station about an hour, Dylan. Spend the night there. Uh, hope the chow's improved. Last time I was there, all I had was fat pork. One passenger says, I never eat fat pork. So the cook told him, well, then just help yourself to the mustard. <laughs> Monument Station was a long, low hut made of sun-dried, mud-colored bricks with a flat roof thatched and then sodded. 
The one building served as an eating room in the daytime and a bunkhouse at night. There wasn't much air inside, and after dinner, fat pork and mustard, Chester, Baudry, and I went out to the corral for a smoke. My gracious alive, I hate to think of sleeping in there. All those men, why, a fella could suffocate. And I'll bet that stock tender hasn't washed himself since he left home. He said he washed his blankets anyways, just this morning. Yeah, sure. You know how? He spreads it on an anthill for a couple of hours. Oh, well, that settles it. I'm sleeping outside. <laughs> All right, Chester. We just don't get too cozy. Half the night you're standing guard over Baudry here. I'll watch him the other half. Well, I'm not going to run away, Marshal. You ran once, Baudry. All right, I'll tell you something, and maybe you'll trust me a little then. Tell me what? Would you like to know who Zimmer is? Zimmer? He that real testy fella? I don't like him at all. He's always on the prod about something or other. Wait a minute, just a Chester. Bit Wait a minute. What about Zimmer, Baudry? His real name is Chess Ryan. So? Well, at least that's the name was under his picture. Well, where was this picture, Baudry? In California, tacked onto a pole. Go on. Well, I think the reward was $500. Of course, I ain't certain. You sure it was his picture? Yeah, Marshal, I'm sure. Heard a lot of talk about him in Sacramento just before I left. What kind of talk? Well, like one time he rode in a stagecoach as a passenger, and he was peaceful enough until some fellows on horses, they stopped that stage in a canyon somewhere, and then this here, Chess Ryan, he pulled a gun on the other passengers, and he disarmed them whilst the boys outside unloaded the treasure box. They had an extra saddle horse along and ride, and he rode off with him. That's the way I heard it. Seems to me he went to a lot of trouble. Uh, sometimes the passengers give road agents as much fight as the driver and messenger, Chester. They feel safe because they're inside. Yeah, and that's what Chess Ryan figured. What, are you going to arrest him, Marshal? I can't arrest a man without cause, Baudry. You may be telling the truth, but I don't know that for sure. I can check on Zimmer when we get to Fort Donner, but... All I can do to Lynn's keep an eye on Well, him. this stage will be robbed long before it gets to Fort Downer, Marshal. Yeah, maybe, but not without a fight. Thanks for telling me, Baudry, and for your sake, I hope it's the truth. If it isn't, you're going to be in more trouble than you are now. All right, keep an eye on him, Chester. I'll be back in a few minutes. Yes, sir. Berryman? Yeah. Uh, out here a minute, will you? What's up, mister? I want to talk to you, that's all. Alone. Come on outside, huh? Be right back, Hank. Save some of that whiskey for me. Right, Barry. What's on your mind, mister? How long you been an express messenger, Berryman? Two years. Not that it's any business of yours. Did you run into any trouble in that time? Some. Why? I just want to know if you can handle yourself, that's all. You want to find out? <laughs> Look, Berryman, you know my name. It's Dillon. I'm Matt Dillon. I'm the U.S. Marshal out of Dodge. Dillon. Dillon. Yeah, I think I remember seeing you there. Good. Now tell me this. You carrying much in that treasure box of yours? The messenger who brought it as far as Pond Creek said it was $50,000, unsigned currency mostly. Mm-hmm. 
Something up, Marshal? Well, maybe. Uh, tell me, what's the best place for a holdup between here and Fort Downer? Oh, well, Willow Bend, I expect. Man on a horse could keep hidden there till we were right on top of him. All right, tell the driver to whip those horses through Willow Bend as fast as they'll go. Chester will be on the roof to help you, and I'll sort of organize the passengers inside. Well, now if there's going to be a holdup, Marshal, you well, should... Well, I, I don't know, I don't know, but we'll play it safe. And, uh, by the way, Berryman, don't let on inside there about this, huh? Or, uh, who I am. All right? Okay, Marshal. Thank you. Good night, Berryman. Night, Marshal. Oh, Marshal. Yeah. We got a jug of station whiskey inside if you want a drink. <laughs> I don't think it'd do much good. I've heard of that stuff freezing solid on a cold night. Next morning, just after sunup, the stage left Monument Station. It was 10 miles to Willow Bend and 12 miles to the next change of horses at a small swing station run by a lone stock tender. Zimmer, or Chess Ryan, if that's who he was, seemed nervous. Too nervous for an experienced road agent, but maybe he had figured me for what I was, and that gave him the jumps. Anyway, I sat next to him so I could handle him faster if and when the time came. We drove at an easy pace until we neared the bend. And then the driver popped his whip over the teams and they began to run hard. But suddenly he was pulling them in and breaking at the same time. One move by Zimmer at that point and I'd have killed or crippled him. What are we stopping here for? Hey, driver! What's up? Uh, wheels been dragging. Couldn't you feel it, Paul? All right, everybody out. Well, what's the idea? Driver, what's wrong? A wheel stuck. Can't pull it off with you in there. Come on, hurry it up. Beaudrys, get over there by Chester. Oh, don't you worry about me. You keep an eye on Reed. Go on now. Come on. What do you think, Dylan? Well, they'd have jumped us by now, Berryman, while everybody was still inside. But keep your head up anyway. You watch the other side of the coach. I'll stay here. Okay. What do you mean it wasn't greased? Why not? It's sizzling hot. We have to cool before we can take it off. That drunken fool at Monument didn't grease this one, that's all. Take a bullwhip to him when I get back there. Well, you can grease it now, can't you? I could, mister, if I had any grease. Well, you mean you haven't got any? Not unless I render you down and make some. Now, get out of my way. Well, any more of that and I'll... <sighs> all right, all right, forget it. What are we going to do? How about grass, driver? Hey, that's an idea. Wrap it around the spindle and go till it wears out. It won't last long, but we can keep putting it on till we get to the next station. Uh, we'll be all day stopping every half mile. Uh, why don't you greenhorns ask a real man how to fix it? All right, Pop. How are we going to fix it? Cheese. Cheese? Yes, cheese. 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 It fine, too. Yeah, it might at that. I suppose you brought some cheese along just in case, Pop, huh? I brought it along to eat. You're but I'll let you have it. It's in my carpet bag. <laughs> Old Gant's cheese worked fine, and we left Willow Bend without more trouble. I began to figure Baudry for a liar, but he just sat there, staring out at the prairie. Said nothing. 
few miles further on, as we approached the swing station, I heard a shout from the messenger, and then Beaudry pointed ahead. And I leaned out to take a look. The station was a small, one-room adobe hut with a usual corral at the rear, but there wasn't a horse in sight. And out of the two windows facing us poured thin streams of white smoke. As the stage pulled to a stop, I saw two arrows embedded in the half-open door. Look at them there. Wait a minute. Uh, let me take a look in there. Let's all take a look, Zimmer. Where's the stock tender? They kill him? They tried to fire the place, but it's just smoldering. Who are those two men? I don't know. But this one's still alive. Well, that's the stock tender. But who are those two? Uh, never mind them. They're dead. Scalp. Indian sure must have surprised him, sneaked right up. All right, Berryman, let's get the stock tender out of this smoke. Take his head there. Yeah. Uh, they scalped him, too. And he ain't even dead. Never mind that. Just pick him up easy. It's all right, fella. Stage is here. Indians, Comanches, they scalped me. Never even heard them. Ask him who those other men were. What were they doing here? Leave him be. The man's dying. Water. Give me a drink. Chester, get the water bag. Yes, sir. Can't you let the man alone, Dylan? Yeah, scalped three men and stole horses. <laughs> That's Comanches for you. Here's the water, sir. Oh, thanks. Here, fella. Here now. Take a drink. There we go. Road agents, those two, they held me up. They said they'd hide till the horses were unhitched. And then, then hold up the stage. Had a partner on the stage to keep the passengers out of it. What was his name? Their partner, I mean. Put my... Head down, mister. It's... It's bubbling over. Uh. The stock tender's eyes clouded up and went blank as I lay his head back. And then there was a scuffle behind me, and before anybody could move, Zimmer grabbed Gant and, using him as a shield, he walked backward toward the stage. The old man stopped struggling when he felt Zimmer's gun in his back, and the rest of us just stood there watching, helpless. First man draws a gun, Gant'll die. You gave yourself away, Chess Ryan. Take it easy, man, take it easy. This, this fool's nervous. Shut up. You, driver. Lead those teams down the road a piece, and then come back here. Yan and I will take the stage alone. Come on! You better do what he says, driver. He's scared enough to shoot. Mm-hmm. Yes, I better. Come on. Oh. What are you stopping for? Take him 50 yards down there. Can't do it. That wheel's froze up again. He ain't going anywhere at that stage. <laughs> Might as well give up right now, young fool. I never did like you, Gant. Ryan, listen to me. You've made your play and you've lost. 
If you give up now, the charges will be attempted robbery. If you don't, they'll probably turn into murder. Who are you anyway, mister? I'm a U.S. Marshal. Well, you're not arresting nobody. Not unless you want Gant dead. You make a move and his blood will be on your hands, Marshal. You can't hold him there forever, Ryan. The stage going west passes through sometime today. What'll you do then? He's right. That stage passes this station about noon. I drive it myself half the time. I'll think of something. Uh, first, I, I want all you men to unload your weapons. Line up and throw them in a pile there. One at a time. But you even start to try anything and I'll blow a hole in the old man. You think you would, Mr. Dillon? He's so nervous now. It's a wonder he doesn't do it by accident, Chester. I get going. Don't stand there. One at a time now. And use two fingers to do it. All right, man, you better do as he says. Now? Go ahead. Easy. All right, next man. Baudry. Yeah? You're the only man who might There's stop mine. this. How? Oh. Pretend to join him. You trust me that much? I have to. Okay, Marshal. All right, easy now. Two fingers... Next man. Ryan. Hold it right there, Poultry. Well, I'm not armed, Ryan. Look. But you know why? Too yellow, maybe. Oh, the marshal's got my gun. I'm under arrest. He's taking you in, is that it? He was, till I woke up just now. I I, I killed a man in Dodge, Ryan. They want to hang me for it. Now, Baudry, we told you you'd get a fair trial. Chester, What's more? Shut up. Yes, sir. Well, look at you. I haven't got much chance alone, Ryan. But you and me, we can disarm these men, throw away their guns, and and ride off on those horses without the coach. You do that, Baudry, and I'll quit my job and run you down if I have to chase you all the way to Oregon. I couldn't show up and dodge after this anyway. Well, I'll be watching for you, Marshal. It beats hanging. Well, how about it, Ryan? Make a fool out of Dylan, huh? Yeah, I like that. I right, pick up a gun, Baudry, and get over here. <laughs> I'm warning you, Baudry. Sorry. I figure I'll live longer this way, Marshal. Yeah. Yeah, you hold the old man, Baudry. I want a free hand. Yeah. I'll kill Gant quicker than Ryan would. Any of you men try anything? You heard him? Now, let's get this over with. Fast. Ryan, I want to tell you something. That's far enough, Marshal. All that... That gun in your hand, Ryan, you better keep it on me. You even glance at Baudry and I'll draw and kill you. What are you talking about? You shoot me and Baudry will kill you from behind. What? That's right, Ryan. Gant, you walk back over towards the hut so as he can see I'll let you go. He... He tricked you, too. But I can still kill you, Marshal. Yeah, that's right, Ryan. You can still kill me. But I'm paid to die. I settled that in my mind when I took this job. It's only a matter of time. But what about you, Ryan? You ready to die? I... I... You can't do this. I'm doing it, Ryan. I'm doing it now. I'm going to walk right up to you, and you're going to give me that gun. Hush, stop, Marshal. Don't... your spine if you shoot, Ryan. Let me have the gun, Ryan. Huh? Huh? Easy, no. Ryan. Now! Did he hit you, Mr. Dillon? 
No, he waited a second too long. Yeah. Yeah, you did fine, Baudry. I'm gonna remember it. Yeah. Now give me back that gun. You still gonna take me in? Of course. No, that. That don't seem fair, Dylan. I'm only a marshal, Baudry, not a judge. Oh. I'm not sure I wouldn't rather die right here. Wait, Baudry. Now, I'll testify at your trial, and I promise you it'll be a fair one, but that's all. Now, give me the gun. You don't make it easy, Marshal. My job's to bring you in. Any way I can get you there. Dead or alive, huh? That's right. Here's the gun. Thank you. The next day, I turned Chess Ryan over to the Army at Fort Donner. The colonel wanted credit for sending him back to California, and I wanted to be rid of him. Took us three days to ride back to Dodge. On the way, we got to be real good friends with Joe Poudry. I wouldn't let him have his gun back. But even so, he managed to supply us with antelope steaks every morning. <sighs> I made him borrow Chester's gun. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin and Lou Krugman, with Vic Perham, Junius Matthews, Jim Nusser, and Ralph Moody. Parley Bayer is Chester. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Thousands of acres of timber are afire in the Midwest, New England, Far West, and Southern areas. This is a word of warning to all who may be in or near woodlands. Take every precaution to avoid setting fires with cigarettes, matches, campfires. Timber is vital to America's defense. Human lives and property are at stake, too. Hunters especially are urged to exercise caution. Any further damage may result in suspension of the hunting season indefinitely. Clancy Cassell speaking, and remember Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy open fire on your funny bone Sunday nights on the CBS radio network.
That episode of Gunsmoke was first broadcast on CBS back on, I guess it was Halloween Day, right? Or Halloween evening, October 31st in 1952. And the name of that one was Overland Express. And we have not played that one for many years, so I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time. He looked down into her brown eyes Said, say a prayer for me She threw her arms around him Whispered, God will keep us free They could hear the riders come He said, this is my last fight If they take me back to Texas They won't take me back There were seven Spanish angels At the altar of the sun They were praying for the lovers In the valley of the gun When the battle stopped And the smoke cleared There was thunder from the throne Seven Spanish angels took another angel home. She reached down and picked the gun that lay smoking in his hand. She said, Father, please forgive me. I can't make it without my But her final prayer was answered when the rifles fired again. There were seven Spanish angels at the altar of the sun. They were praying for the lovers in the valley of the gun. Another angel
Alison Krauss and Jamie Johnson singing just a beautiful, beautiful tune entitled Seven Spanish Angels. That recording was done as a tribute to Willie Nelson in Washington, D.C. a a couple years back. Will, I see Chester is waving frantically, trying to tell me that we're all out of time. So I guess with that, I will pick up all of the shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. We will be back. We will be back, so don't worry about it. We'll have another new slate of shows and some more good music and some stories and reminiscing. We'll do it again real soon, I promise. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bros. I am so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. something? Some more folk buttering into the bone. Take me up. Take me. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Cuddy say can't hang. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose blood. She gonna catch up on the rebound on the men's side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting thing. Chomp the one to help. Chomp Don't get that Say can't hang. Say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in him.